following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. All right, let's get to work this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you grab them? Would you open with me to Genesis 29? We have a weird one this morning. This would make the weirdest movie, the weirdest soap opera. I mean, just strange in a lot of ways. I'm going to pick on my wife for a moment. I should have told you I was going to do this. Um, it's not bad, I promise. Now you're all listening. Um, last week, she was, in, she was in service, and I was preaching through Genesis 28, and that afternoon, I asked her the question that every pastor asks his wife, like, how was that? Was that clear? You know, how, how'd that come across? Like, every pastor's wife will be asked that question today at 1230. Um, but I asked her, and she told me, she was honest. She said, honestly, I was distracted. It's like, what? How dare you? Like, how can you say that, right? Um, and so I asked her, I said, what do you mean? She said, I got distracted because of the text. I said, what do you mean? She goes, I made the mistake of reading ahead. And she goes, I could hear what you're saying, but how on earth are we going to handle this? And um, listen, I was deeply insulted. No, I'm joking. I wasn't. If you're going to get distracted by something in the service and it's God's word or prayer, I'll fist bump you, all right? I'm not going to get mad at you. Um, but, but listen, she was right. As you read ahead, it's this crazy story of deceit, polygamy, um, a weird race to have more and more children, mandrakes, because there's a lot going on here. Um, this, is a, this is a strange one. It's a super dysfunctional family. Um, just crazy. And to make things weirder, is this super dysfunctional family is God's chosen family. It's the plan of God. This was Jacob, the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And these children that we're going to read about were the 12 tribes, right? Uh, God was going to use them in an incredible way. What we're going to see through this story is that this is all the proof you are ever going to need. All the proof that you are ever going to need. That no matter what we do, God works in and through crazy people and crazy stories. As much as we try to take this thing off the rails, God's plan cannot be stopped, cannot be thwarted. This text is all the proof we need. And that's really good news, amen? Well, as we dive into this, this one, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for this moment, this day that you have made for bringing us together around your truth and your word. We thank you that no, no matter our background, no matter where we come from, no matter if we're, uh, we're young or old, no matter if we're, what our ethnicity is, no matter the status of our bank account, no matter any of it, we thank you that we are saved by grace that we are brought into your family through Jesus Christ, that we stand shoulder to shoulder under your word that you've given to us in scripture. And so this morning we stand under it. We ask that you speak, that you reveal our sin, that you strengthen our faith, that you stir our affections for Jesus. And as you do that, we say thank you, we give you glory, 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so I'm going to split this text into two parts, okay? The first part I'm going to call the marriage war, and the second one I'm going to call the birthing war. Um, Both make up, both of the two parts that make up this crazy story. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to build on it in some really powerful ways. Um, Let's start with Act 1, the marriage wars, or war. Uh, Jacob here is searching for his wife, just as Isaac, his dad, told him to do. If you remember, Isaac said, don't take a wife from here. Um, From a Canaanite woman, what did he say? He said, go, take your wife from one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother, right? You remember that? He tells him to go, and this was Jacob's mission, his objective to find a wife, not only a wife, though, specifically from the daughters of Laban. This was his task. And wow, was uh, Jacob pleasantly surprised when he saw her. He gets to this land. He finds some people here in verse 4. Um, and he says, my brothers, where, where did you come from? Uh, they said, we are from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, yeah, we, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And here it is. They say, and see, Rachel, oh, Rachel, his daughter is coming with the sheep. This is the moment of truth. Jacob was sent for this purpose. He had not seen her, though. They didn't have Facebook. He couldn't Facebook stalk. He did not know what he was about to get into. His heart's racing. And then he sees her. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with his father, her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, not in, sure why they include the sheep in that description, but um, Jacob comes near, he moves the stone, and then this is a bold move. Maybe there's some context difference here, there probably is, but... This is bold. Our man Jacob then, verse 11, kisses Rachel and weeps aloud. That's bold. Like, I don't know if when the first time you saw your your spouse, but I mean, when I met Candace, I don't think I did that. Um, But that was Jacob. These were not tears, by the way, just so we're not confused, of sadness, mourning, uh, stress or distress. No, these were tears of joy. This was a happy man right here. And Jacob, or Rachel runs back, tells her father. They meet each other, embrace each other, and they live happily ever after. Wrong in every way. In every way. See, Jacob stays with them for a month, works for Laban for, for a month, and then the conversation comes up. It's like, hey, you can't be a bum here. You shouldn't. In verse 15, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. And here's the moment Jacob was waiting for. You know, Laban, there, there, there is. There is something that I would like. Let me rephrase that. There is someone that I would like. Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. 
We're only given a brief description, um, and that was in 17. Le- uh, Leah's eyes or Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Um, but even more than that description, verse 18 sets the tone. Jacob loved Rachel. Loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you for seven years for her. And, and I love Laban's response. It is such a dad move. This is a dad move. Dads don't change. Listen to this. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. So, stay, so in other words, I guess this guy's a little less terrible than what could be out there. So, you know, I love that. I love that. But Jacob here would work and serve Laban for seven years. Come on, guys, seven years. If you just pull like an a average salary package and you factor in seven years of work, you're looking at approximately four hundred to $500,000. That's over 2,500 days. But Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. Worth it, right? And you have to love this line, uh, verse 20. Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. This is beautiful, right? It's the making of a really good country song right there. Um, Now let's fast forward. Seven years are complete. He's done it. Seven years are complete. So Laban calls a party, a feast, a celebration. And after the festivities, the ceremonies, the marriage was consummated. They lived happily ever after. (laughs) No. In the midst of the celebration, see, a deceitful plan was, was kind of concocted. Laban, looking out for his older daughter, like Leah, like looking out for her, thinks, (laughs) here's my opportunity. Instead of Rachel, he takes his older daughter, Leah, disguises her, and it is only when the morning rolls around that Jacob rolls over to find what had happened. He loved Rachel. He worked for Rachel $450,000 and 2,500 days, he loved Rachel, only the woman he just married was not Rachel. It was Leah. This kind of deception has to remind us of just a few, a few chapters earlier when Jacob and his mom, Rebecca, um, did the deceiving. If you remember that, it was, um, it was two brothers, not two sisters, If you remember that, it was a blessing instead of a marriage. But in both cases, there was a sibling who was favored over the other. And in both cases, disguises were used to trick and to deceive. The similarities are just striking to me. Only this time, Jacob was in the other seat. Now, at this point, all ideas of happily ever after, smooth sailing in your first years of marriage are gone. Thrown out the window. So Jacob says, why have you done this to me? Verse 26, it's not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And Jacob, I'm sure, is like, you could have told me that earlier. 
we could have talked about that. Um, complete, then he goes on, he says, complete this one, the, the week of this one, then I'll give you the other one also. And in return, serve me another seven years. Let me remind you, Jacob loved Rachel. So he, that's approximately $1 million. If you're doing math, that's approximately 5,000 days of his life. Quite a good deal for Laban. One thing for sure, though, Jacob loved Rachel. He agrees. And, and after all is said and done, Laban gives Jacob or Rachel to Jacob for his wife. And we're already... It's so easy to see. The writing is on the wall for disaster here. Um, Absolute disaster here. But I want to take a quick moment here to bring something out that I think is, is kind of important before we move on to the birthing wars. And that is marriage. Marriage. Um, scripture teaches the church has held to the belief that marriage that God created marriage. Let me say that. God created marriage. And that marriage is the covenant between one man and one woman for a life together. And we see this all throughout Scripture as God reveals his heart and his plan for marriage. We see it in Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, not wives, plural, And they shall become one flesh, not fleshes. And Jesus would later quote this. And and Jesus in in Mark says, But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, uno. And they shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, as I read this, I know some of you are saying, okay, pastor, we, we, we get this. But as we read texts like this, I think we need to just pause for a quick moment. We can often think, God, why are you silent about this? If you never thought about that, try to read this text to your kindergartners. And you think, why, God, did you, why did you remain silent about this? Why didn't you condemn it? Why didn't you take this whole multiple wife thing and just give us a clear thou shalt not? Why didn't you do that? And more than that, why does it even appear that you're blessing it? Listen, I, um, I believe this is important as we look at texts like this. For us to realize that God's silence does not equal approval. That God's silent in this particular instance does not mean that God approves of all that is happening in this weird situation. Um, It's important for cases like this for us to be able to zoom out, to zoom out and to allow the weight of other texts to speak into what we're seeing here and what we're confused about in ours, to help the weight of other texts of Scripture to speak into the silence. There's an old rule in in understanding Scripture to let Scripture interpret Scripture. 
Whenever we're confused on Scripture, let Scripture speak into it. That when something's difficult or there is silence, what we need to do is consider, consider the whole of Scripture as it comes to bear on whatever it is that we're looking at, in this case, marriage. And as we do this, it's important for us to do this right here. As we zoom out, we're able to see God's great and beautiful and wonderful plan for marriage and for human flourishing. God reveals his plan for one woman, one man, one flesh, right? As we looked at in Genesis and Mark. And as we do this, as we live that out in marriage... We literally model for the watching world what the love of Jesus looks like. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but just stop and think about how Scripture says, Husbands, I want you to love your wife. This is just one example. Like Christ loved the church. I want you to love your wife like that. In other words, I want you to say, you know what Christ's love looks like? Let me show you the way I love my wife. Let me demonstrate the sacrificial love of Jesus through the sacrificial love that I have for my wife. This is God's design. In other words, your marriage is designed by God to be a gospel proclamation. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But you're to model for your spouse you're to model for your kids. You're to model for the world what the love of Jesus looks like. How incredible is that? Now, are we perfect in this? No, no, not at all. But this is our true north. This is our hope. This is where we want to be in our marriages. This is God's design for our marriages and for human flourishing. And although we see here in this text this practice of polygamy or having more than one wife, we see it here. We're able to say three things with confidence. One, just because our culture accepts it or practices this or approves of a practice does not mean we should or that God does. It, it, there are many reasons why this practice was done in this time. We're not going to have time to get into all of the reasons why. But there are things that were happening in this culture that led this culture to normalize and to legalize polygamy. But just because our culture accepts, approves, normalizes, calls things normal or legal does not mean we should or that God does. That's number one. Number two is that just because God does not actively condemn this practice in this specific text does not mean he condones it. Silence in one text cannot and should not be used as our proof text. Say, well, I guess it's all right. We should zoom out. Let's scripture speak to scripture. Third is just because God allows this practice here does not negate God's wonderful revealed plan for marriage. In other words, we don't have a thou shalt not right here. We, we, we don't. But we do have the full weight of scripture that reveals God's plan for marriage. That our marriage is for one man, one woman, one flesh. To walk together, to grow in grace together. To demonstrate the love of Jesus together. A living, breathing gospel 
presentation together. That's it. That's it. So as we engage with this first part of our text, the marriage war, we see three things. We're able to say three things with confidence. And that is, one, just because our culture accepts it does not mean we should. Two, just because God does not actively condemn it in this text does not mean he condones it. And three, just because God allows it in our text does not negate God's beautiful plan and design for marriage, for human flourishing. So, as we will see, this practice, by the way, leads to a mess, a big heap of mess. And we roll out of the marriage war with strife, division, unrest, just a drama-filled disaster that leads us, sets the stage for disaster number two, which is the birthing war. Let's get into that. Um, We see that, as we said, um, Jacob, man, he loved Rachel. And then we also see in verse one um, that Jacob hated Leah. See, the tricking had led to some bad habits and bad blood and just set the tone here. Yet, God looks at Leah, take this in, with compassion. As messy as this was, he looks at her with compassion and he blesses her with children. And we're off to the races. Here we go. I'm going to work through this quickly because I think it's better when I do. Because we're able to kind of take in the whole scope of this craziness. Um, So Leah, she had Reuben, then Simeon, then Levi, then Judah. That's four. Um, Then she takes a breather. How dare her, right? No, she, she takes a breather after that. So we have four kids that come from Leah right away. Then Rachel, um, as we see in her text, sees all this and was jealous, envious of her, her sister because she was barren at this point. So in, in verse 1 of chapter 30, Rachel, it says, Rachel saw uh, that she bore Jacob no children. She envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. <laughs> Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God? In other words, what can I do about this, right? Um, Am I in the place of God who has withheld the fruit of the womb? So the plan, the polygamy plan continues. Rachel says, hmm, then marry my servant, have a child with her. So the plot thickens. Um, It just gets worse. So, We see Leah had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and then Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Jacob's third wife, has Dan and then Naphtali. So Leah says, well, two can play at this game. I guess in this case, four can play at this game. Um, She says, well, I'm going to copy Rachel's plan. I'm going to give Jacob my servant, Zilpah, wife number four, and just great idea after great idea keeps rolling in. And, and they try to literally outbirth each other here. So then Zilpah has two more babies. That's Gad 
And then Asher, so if you're keeping score, Leah and her team six, Rachel and her team two, six to two. We're not done here, though, because uh, starting in verse 14, we get to the mandrake part. And um, what we see here is that Leah exchanges mandrakes with Rachel for a chance to have more children. And through this, Leah has another, Issachar, followed shortly thereafter by another, Zebulun, and then a daughter named Dinah. Whew. So at this point, the, the birthing wars Conclude with the time being, this time with Rachel getting the last word, I guess you can, you can say having the last baby. Um, she had not conceived yet. She, got, she was pregnant with a baby boy whose name was Joseph, all right? What a mess. How on earth could God possibly use all of this Stuff, this extremely dysfunctional family. How could God use this? That, church, is the question of the day. How could God use this? Last week, we looked at Jacob and his life up to this point, and we asked the question, why on earth, Jacob? Why did you choose Jacob? This dude is, there's nothing in his life that would earn him or get him any merit to earn God's favor. Nothing. Nothing justifies this blessing. It doesn't make sense. Yet God blesses him. Why, Jacob? That's what we talked about last week. And this led us to better understand the grace of God, that Jacob was not chosen because Jacob was good. Jacob was chosen because God was good. That Jacob did not set himself apart from all the rest. No, 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 no. God set Jacob apart from all the rest. This is grace, completely unearned, unmerited favor of God. God chose Jacob. Why Jacob? Because of grace. And then realize something huge. Last week we realized this, that we are Jacob. That this is us. Why Jacob? Why me? Why you? It is about grace, the grace of God. We are saved by grace and grace alone. That's where we were last week. Why Jacob? This morning, we're simply going to expand that a little bit and not only ask why. Why could, how, why could God, why did he choose Jacob? But this morning, we're going to ask the how question. How could God use Jacob in all of his mess, in all of these terrible decisions? How could God use Jacob? Jacob and this mess. This is not the way it should be. This is dysfunctional. How could God use all of this? The marriages, the birthing, the mandrakes, all that goes into it. How could God use this mess? Church, this is so important. I think in many ways this is probably it's just as relatable as why Jacob for us. The answer to the how question is the same answer to the why question. This is what I mean. How could God use Jacob? Well, it was grace upon grace upon grace. In other words, the grace of God did not just call Jacob and save Jacob. The grace of God sustains him. It is not only justifying, it is sanctifying. We are not only saved by grace back then, but we are walking in grace today. 
How many know that after you have been called out by God, after God has revealed himself to you and you've responded, how many know that you're not done growing in grace? You are not done relying on God's grace. We are not done. How many know that the grace of God, the the need for the grace of God in our lives does not go away, it does not lessen after you respond to the gospel? How many have ever felt that daily need of God's grace? Jacob was called by grace and grace alone because that was God's plan by grace and grace alone. God pours out his grace on Jacob because it was his divine plan to do that. And it doesn't end here because God just continues to pour out his grace on this man and this story. Jacob still has some growth and grace to do. So God poured out the grace. There are some important things, three that I really want us to see as we, as we finish. Number one is that God has not saved you to leave you alone until eternity. Sometimes I, I think that we need to remind ourselves that, that God hasn't saved you and said, Peter, I love you. Uh, any Peters in the room? I'm not, I'm not talking to you specifically, sorry. Um, Peter, I love you. I'm saving you. I'll see you later. That's not what salvation is. Salvation isn't this, I'm going to save you, hope you have a good life and figure it all out. Good luck. I'll see you again later. It'll be worth it in eternity. That's not what we see the Christian walk, what following Jesus looks like. No, God has saved you by his grace, and now he is growing you by his grace. He has saved you and growing you. He has justified you through the work of Christ, and now he is sanctifying you in Christ. In our text, God chose Jacob, blessed Jacob, made some incredible promises to Jacob, and then Jacob makes an absolute mess out of his life. Can you relate? I think you can. I think we can. God's grace remains His plan and his promise are not thwarted. So the first thing is God has not saved you to leave you alone till eternity. The second thing I want us to see, this is huge if you hear nothing else. The grace of God is sufficient enough to save you and it is sufficient enough to sustain you. I think it's easier for us to think, Well, God can conquer all odds to bring me from death to life, but man, I'm a mess up now. Will his grace run out? Church, he will conquer all odds, not only to save you, call you to himself, forgive you. He will conquer all odds to sustain you and sanctify you, bring you to himself. He will not lose you. That is grace. We said, why, Jacob? Grace. How could he still be dealing with Jacob and all of this mess? Grace. It is amazing to me that it is so much easier for me, I'm going to speak for me, to, to understand and to believe that God has saved me from my sin, brought me into the family of God, than it is for me to believe the fact that our God, he is not giving up on me. That is grace. It doesn't depend on you, and it doesn't run out when you make a mess. 
He doesn't lose you or say, never mind. His grace is sufficient, not only for salvation, but for life. God has not saved you to leave you alone for eternity. God's grace is sufficient enough to save you. It's sufficient enough to sustain you. And the third one, please hear me, is that God is going to do what he promises to do. God will do all that he promised to do. Grace says God's going to do what he promised to do because of grace and because he is faithful. You may be here and you can relate to Jacob in so many ways. I hope not polygamy, that's illegal. But you can probably read the story and relate to the fact that God just saved him and blessed him and promised to him and then he messes it all up, right? We can relate to this. Your life may be a mess right now. Your relationships might be an absolute disaster right now, and it might be your fault. You may have made a mess, and you might even be right now in the process of making that mess. Listen, church, to all of us and all of our messy lives, the promises of God, all that he has promised you, all that he has promised you will pass, will happen, because he is God, he is always faithful, and his love never fails. Ever, 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 ever. If you remember, God said in chapter 28, verse 15, he says, behold, I'm with you, I'm gonna keep you, I'm gonna bring you back, and I'm not gonna leave you until I have done all that I have promised to do for you. We ask, why Jacob? Grace. Now we ask, how could God still be using this guy? It's not because of how good he was. It's not because of how great he was. It is because the grace of God. It's because God made a promise. And our God keeps his promise, all of them, each and every time. And I hope that you're able to see it. You have not messed up too much. You have not messed up too much. You've not out and it is a shame when, when we as Christians can understand the grace of God in our salvation, but then totally live in shame and fear because we can't understand the grace of God in our daily walks. This text remind, reminds us that God's grace, we are saved, and it's by God's grace that we now walk. You don't go from sinner, get saved, and become the perfect insta-saint. No, that is a process. That is growth in grace. And we get the joy of walking in that, the joy of growing in that. He will do all that he promises to do. And as we close, before I pray, I want to remind us of one thing. Psalm 70, 68, you don't need to turn with me there, but um, says, but he chose, this is God, chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. How did he choose Judah? I mean, what could this mean? What, what does it mean that he chose Judah? Well, ultimately, we will find that it is through Judah, this tribe, this household, that God would bring Jesus Christ into the world. I want you to take this in. In each account of Jesus' genealogy, we know that, that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. As messy as this is, the birth wars, the marriage war, all of that, God's promise would not fail. And ultimately, he would use Judah, the son of Leah, to bring the son of God into the world. 
Our God is a God of redemption. He redeems us from death to life, and he's constantly redeeming our messes. Using the mess for his glory, not letting the mess win. Instead, taking what the, what the enemy meant for evil and working it together for the good. His promises will not fail, and he will accomplish all that he has promised to do. Let's pray together. Lord, I am grateful today for your reminder to me that you have not only, not only have you saved me by your grace, not by my works, not by what I have done, you showed me your grace in bringing me into your family. Not only is all of that true, praise God that that, that is true, but Lord, thank you for showing us that your grace is sufficient in our walk, in our life, and when we are weak, you are strong. Thank you for reminding us that that we cannot mess up your promises, that your promises are yes and amen. They will find their completion because you are faithful, you are good, you are true. And Lord, it is by your grace that we know you And it is by your grace that we now walk with you. I pray that you help us as we leave this place to grow in grace and grow in our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.